Hello and welcome to the Pink Bike Podcast. My name is Henry and this week I'm joined by Pink Bike contributor Taj Mihilic. Now, Taj, we're doing this Getting to Know series. Immediately, as soon as we put the first one out, there were people already asking for your involvement to hear a bit more about your story. Um, which is interesting because you're not, in the strictest sense, a mountain biker initially. You were BMXer. For how long were you pro and when was this period? Uh, I rode pro, depends how you count it, but 20 years, 18 years, um, starting in the early 90s until, I don't know, I kind of call the cutoff, say like 12 years ago, I had a pretty bad back injury slash surgery, and that was sort of when I had to call on my sponsors and tell them to stop paying me. <laughs> well, um, so talk, talk to me like the idiot I am. BMX, was it the big ramp stuff that people might think of in terms of skateboarding? Is it more street stuff? What, what was your kind of calling within BMX? I did a bit of everything. I um, rode park, like the ramps. I rode street. I rode vert. I rode dirt. And, it, and if you kind of, I don't know, if I look back at my career, there's sort of cycles where I focused more on dirt and focused more on street and kind of almost see the injuries where I like turn direction, you know? I, I, I kind of wrote everything. I, I never wrote the big mega ramp stuff. I was there when Matt Hoffman kind of started that. I rode for Hoffman bikes at the time. And I looked at that and just decided that's something for Matt and not for me. Mm. There was something about that sort of like, you're going to die if it doesn't work out versus you're just going to have a bad crash if it doesn't work out that crossed the line for me. Mm. But yeah, did a bit of everything. And when you look back at, that big ramp stuff in its infancy compared to where we are now with the Red Bull hard line in terms of mountain biking and the Fest series and these huge jumps. And I think also probably Nitro Circus and that sort of entertainment. How do you feel about it? When, because it's interesting because if you asked me what mountain biking is, it's quite a hard question to answer. But from a mountain biking perspective, we say, well, what is BMXing? And it's, do, do, which, is there one particular discipline or area that represents what BMX is most to you? Oh, that's a tough question. No, not, no, not, not for me. For me, it's more, well, I'll just make this totally for me personally. It's, it was more of a mindset. It's creativity over all else. So what it, what that means is to me is like, you're looking for new ways to ride your bike, new ways, new things to do on your bike more so than you know, I don't know, performing a stunt or even pulling the trick or what genre it is or what style of riding it's more in, in, in overwinning anything. It's just creativity was sort of the, the goal and the focus for me. Well, that's a really interesting point because I mean, we'll, we will kind of, you know, go into a bit more of a sort of chronological story, but I think it's a really interesting conversation to get involved in. Do you think that extreme sports like I, I, I'm, I'm quite romantic, so I like the idea of self-expression, but obviously it often goes hand in hand with ego. In terms of extreme sports, what do you think is the biggest driver? Because it feels like you see ego where maybe to some people, obviously that might be doing the biggest jump ever. That might be getting the winning the big competition. But then again, maybe who's, who am I to say that's not just a genuine self-expression, right? How did you integrate your ego? Obviously like, you know, 
being a pro BMXer and not doing the big ramp stuff? Was it a question of, did anyone ever question that? Did you question yourself? Well, so big ramp, you're talking totally about like big air, big yeah. crazy stuff. That was never an issue. That really in my time, that was never, it was kind of just Matt, to be mm. honest with oh, you. Okay. Like mega ramp came into the X Games. I was there, but it was like, they invited like five people to do it. And I just totally wasn't interested. Um, I mean, by that point, I was already kind of done with those contests anyway. I don't know if I really answered your question. Ego, no, ego no. wise, like, yeah, I don't know. That just didn't appeal to me. Didn't appeal to you, yeah. It seemed, it was just too much of a circus. You know, it was too much of a, well, it's totally not fair because there's people that really did cr- amazing stuff on there, but it, it's just, you know, you need this special $100,000 apparatus to even <laughs> do it. You know, like, yeah. It just wasn't real to me, you know? I wanted mm. to be able to ride out my front door and, that was that was what it was. My bike was literally part of me. It wasn't about going to some special place. That's no, all kind of nonsense because, no, of course, I went to skate parks and stuff. Oh, no, it's true. I mean, it's funny because I'm, that attitude within me is something that I've had for a long time and it's softening. Like, for instance, I've always thought it's quite funny. I mean, we're here in Whistler now just for some context. We're both got lift passes, been riding the park a lot. I'm kind of a late a latecomer to riding on lifts, to be honest with you, because, well, I've always thought, wow, like, it was always amazed me how hard people tried to make skiing a thing. You know what I mean? Like the infrastructure that goes into it to make sure people can slide down a hill on pieces of wood is quite bizarre. You know, and just even like, you know, we look at Peace, which can be really beautiful, you know, green sort of meadows. But actually, even the way they build Peace, like it's an, it's the construction of it's quite an ugly thing. You know, and there's so much sort of ugliness to make a leisure pursuit happen. And obviously I'm here riding downhill bikes and yada, yada, yada. So take it all the pinch of salt but it is strange when like you said the barriers become bigger and actually removes further away from that maybe that expression side of just going out your front door on a walk even and being like wow i want to ride that and then going back there with your bike so going back to how you got into bmx when did you first get into bmx was it bmx racing you got into initially uh, yeah, I mean, when I was a little, little kid, it was before I knew what BMX was, of course. I just wanted to jump my bike, and I wanted to see how far I could jump it. Whatever bike it was, it was a 10-speed or, you know, called road bikes 10-speeds back then. <laughs> um, or seat with a, you know, bike with a banana seat, whatever. That's just what I wanted to do. When I was about 12 or 13, I found out about BMX racing and got into that a little bit. But very quickly realized I just wanted to hit jumps. I wasn't really interested in trying to win races or just didn't have the knack for it. And, but I mean, that felt like home riding bikes, hitting jumps, you know, from a very early age. And where did you grow up exactly? I was in lower Michigan, kind of moved around like every year or two. So I was always in a different place, but you know, suburbs of Detroit basically. And was it easy to find in those days in that area, good, the riding that you wanted? Was it, you know, were you building trails? How how did that look? There was nothing, Mm. you know, there'd be like a single jump we'd find or I'd find alone, you know. There was very little back then, mm. pre-skate park era, you know. It's it's wild. I mean, obviously, we have trail forks that we're, we're linked up with. Um, how to, how much we take for granted be able to find mountain biking trails? Even in the last 10 years, it's changed a lot. But I imagine back then, it was a whole different ballgame. Yeah, I mean, I was, well, I was a little kid, so I had very limited range. Uh, but, 
yeah, there was nothing. Like when I got a little older, 15, my friends would take me to Chicago, which was like six hours away. That was the nearest skate park. Um, and you know, now there's one in every town. Can you remember your first time, like riding, like what, for instance, for me, I remember going to New Zealand and riding mountains there for the first time. And that was like, wow, I finally arrived at what mountain biking is. Previously, I've been going around the West Midlands in the UK where the hill was 55, 60 meters tall. Like it was very different. Can you remember that, the first location you got to? And it's like, wow, I've been practicing this skill. And now it's actually, I found the right place to really practice it. One of my first skate park contests, I couldn't clear the, the jump, the box jump, you know, wooden jump because I'd never ridden anything like it. And I broke the top of it. I broke through the top of it. So I was <laughs> landing on top of it so much. And I remember the owner of the park was like, kind of gave me shit, you know, thanks for breaking my jump. And I was like suicidal. Like, <laughs> but after that, I cleared it. Uh, just, or I was going to die. I was, you know, I don't know that that wasn't really a very pleasant memory to be yeah. honest with you, but yeah, no, so that's sort of what I remember. Because I think, well, BMX, would you say it's as, as a sport of like individuals? I mean, people kind of group together, but it feels like a lot of people are out there doing their own thing quite a bit. I mean, compared to maybe mountain biking, similar, but especially compared, especially to other things of cycling, like road cycling, for instance, where it feels more like it's it's you know you're on club runs and group rides and things like this. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it's totally, especially coming from my era, it was very isolated. You know, you were by yourself, or I was certainly by myself almost all the time. And that actually made it really interesting. You show up at contests where people would kind of gather from all over the world, and it'd be this really eccentrically different groups of people and different tricks that people were kind of making up. And um, I can remember going to contests, and there was just this comical groups that would come from like like the dudes from i forget where there's this one group that would come from like iowa or something they'd all be like they're all like baseball players they'd show up in like <laughs> baseball gear and then there'd be a group from like indiana and they were all it like sounds like anchorman when they had the fight and it's like channel five news oh it's, then- it's uh <laughs> uh the warriors movie you know the, the gangs yeah <laughs> There's a group from Indiana. They're all like hippies. They're all like, you know, and then there's, there's, you know, the street kids from East coast. It was super bizarre, but it was really interesting because we're all like joined together and we're all like come to these like contests and the riding was really unique and different. Do you think that I suppose without internet, without Instagram, not being able to fix all these athletes now, I suppose they can kind of tune into where everyone, the level that everyone else is at and people might keep a trick hidden or whatever especially going into things like um you know the big slope style stuff but that, then i suppose it would just turn up and like, oh my god i never even thought of that or was that an element to it oh yeah oh yeah 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 <laughs> like you'd learn so much at a contest because you'd see all the stuff you never thought of and yeah we're we're totally old man talking here we're talking early 90s you know so we have to make the pre-internet disclaimer <laughs> and um what was so Discovered a love for BMX as a teenager. When was the first time you thought, maybe I can make a bit of money out of this or maybe even a career out of this? Well, I didn't think that probably forever, really. But like, I definitely remember I was getting close to graduating high school and there was some contest we went to. There was a dirt jumping contest. And it was like the first one I'd ever heard of that was within a thousand miles and went to it. And I ended up placing second behind like people I knew in the magazine and that really blew me away. It was kind of like, 
very unexpected and um uh people started offering to sponsor me and pay for me to go on trips and at first you know the money you would make was like just enough to eat not to live even and then eventually it grew from there but it was such a slow process of being able to survive off bikes that i almost didn't realize it was happening but i was totally dedicated to it i didn't care i'd you know live on ramen and sleep on a hard floor with no mattress just to like be able to ride bikes all day and when you were going through that was that was that did you move town or anything to go for better riding or for a better riding scene i left pretty i left home pretty early like i was like 16 and went lived in a skate park for a while and then in, in a skate park Nice. Under a box jump or pretty, yeah, pretty much like in a closet. It was yeah, nice. rough scene. But then I uh that went sour and I went down to Austin, Texas, just strictly because it was warm. That's all I knew. It was warm. Yeah. I showed up in Austin, vaguely knew a couple riders there. I showed up with five dollars, a jar of peanut butter, and a bag of popcorn. I remember living on popcorn for weeks because I had no money. <laughs> but that was the spot, you know, like Austin was the spot for me and I could ride all day, every day. It was beautiful. What made it so good? Warm in the winter. Um, there was trails there, like in the town. It's actually still there. Nice street trails are like right downtown. You can see the Capitol building. Super bizarre because it's totally illegal or was because just built trails in a city park and they just have stuck around. And there's really great street riding there. Back then early 90s you could ride on the university of texas campus which is this huge campus and has an awesome street riding and nobody said anything that's great and do you think you know it's kind of a it's kind of a trope of maybe it's now that like kind of karen's you know getting getting skateboarders and bmx's off the sidewalk when you look back now having maybe aged a little bit what do you think of was was there were people kind of would people get? Would you get into altercations where you shouldn't be skating somewhere and people would would get angry at you? Was that kind of more of a a trope? Yeah, you're when you're street riding, you're in the streets. It's actually really interesting because you end up. You what you do is you just search behind every alley and every building, and you just dig around, and you you end up getting embedded with like unhoused population mm. and like the crazy shit that's you know the crazy people living in alleys and garbage cans and really rough rough stuff that you get to see and just kind of are in and yeah you get security guards and cops that you got to deal with and those were never enjoyable yeah it you know late, later in my life it got to the point where i just couldn't stand it anymore like i hated getting hassed, hassled by the cops and you know i had cops pull guns on me for riding on the sidewalk and wow. it would like just absolutely put me in such a bad mood that I just decided screw it. I'm just going to focus on ramps and dirt jumps where I don't have to deal with this. Um, so how, how long did you live in Texas for then? When did, what ages were you? you uh, I got there when I was like 19 and I lived there till I, I kind of moved away here and there to go like live by trails or whatever. But mostly I was there till I was like 36 or something. Okay. So a, a huge chunk of your life was spent. Yes. Spent there. And, um, what age, you know, we said before about the beginnings of understanding this could be some sort of pro career. How old were you when you actually started making, I'm not talking, you know, huge, but enough money to live comfortably or to, to have a life that was sort of not uh, so hand to mouth? 
I was riding for Hoffman bikes. And I was making like a hundred dollars a month. That was my contract. Hundred dollars a month and free ice cream anytime I went to Oklahoma City. <laughs> Actually, I still have the contract. It's pretty oh my hilarious. god! We need to do this thing. Sorry, just to go off on a tangent. I would love to do a, some kind of podcast or video or series, like weird clauses in people's contracts, because I know a slopestar rider, and in his contract, I don't know if it still says it, but at the time it said he has to try. <laughs> <laughs> I've had some weird clauses too. I think I had one that pretty much literally said, you do you and we'll support you. And that was from like a major company. And they, they actually, I remember them telling me like, yeah, usually our contracts are like 20 pages long and you, but we're just decided this is, this is the one for you. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so I ride for off on bikes. And I was riding for Airwalk, riding in quotes because I basically just got free shoes. They weren't paying me. Yeah. Maybe they were paying me like hundred. I don't know. It was Matt got some crazy, Matt Hoffman got some crazy deal with Reeboks. They started this offshoot brand called Box. They're really terrible shoes. <laughs> but it was supposed to be like their BMX skateboard shoe. Like they were just terrible. But they were paying a lot of money. And so a whole bunch of the big pros rode for Box. And I remember getting a call from Airwalk and I, they had offered me money. And I'm like, I'm not riding those stupid shoes. I don't care how much you pay me. <laughs> but then at Airwalk, my team manager called me. He's like, hey, I know Box is going to give you a bunch of money. So we're going to match them so you don't have to, so you can stay with us. And they all of a sudden bumped my salary to like 1500 a month from like a hundred a month. Wow. And I could live on that like happily. And I didn't, I didn't tell them that I turned box down already. You know, <laughs> that was it. Like all of a sudden I quit my job and I was, a, that's all I did. So I bikes all day, every day. And what had you been doing for work? I worked in a grocery store. I was a, I worked in a juice bar at a grocery store. Nice. Thanks. Yeah. Because now you obviously, we'll, we'll come back into where you left off, but. Now you work, would you say you work solely or primarily as an illustrator? Because you do writing, you do other bits and pieces. Yeah. I, I mean, it's all design work, I guess. I, I, so I do graphics and design for Fairdale Bikes. Um, and in that capacity, I actually help. I don't know. I'm part of like picking geometry and stuff. You know, I used to be the full brand manager. And I used to go to Taiwan and pick smoke nipples and stuff. But mm. now it's toned down a lot i stepped away and then i do freelance kind of whatever animation illustration cartoons sometimes i write i don't know how that's worked out to be a job for me but that's what i do how how, how did you end up on on it i mean it's a so you you have this bmx career you said you had quite a, well, a very significant injury that was it an immediate thing like oh i'm going to turn to illustration was it like uh, something you'd already had going or was it years where you no the story i think this is kind of an amazing story certainly very fortunate for me i i so i'm in austin i have the surgery i had like six months of rehab practically could hardly walk for a while and just could you just explain to listeners what what happened to your back was it and how it was injured yeah i tore i basically tore a bunch of discs very badly to the point where well that the i was just in constant pain for a few years like just so much energy dedicated to pain management. I'd go to a contest. I remember going to a contest in Germany. I knew I couldn't practice because if I practiced, I wouldn't be able to ride the next day. So how, I'd like, how old are you at this point? Sorry. 35, 36. Yeah. And it was a really miserable time because you kind of don't realize how much pain you're in when you're in those situations and just trying to manage it. Anyway, I finally had this surgery. They fused a bunch of vertebrae in my lower back. So I lost a lot of mobility and go through all this rehab and it just wasn't getting better. You know, like right 
six months after surgery is when I could finally start riding and bunny hopping up a little curb would just send shooting pain. And I was like incapacitated, couldn't ride BMX at a, at a high level. And, uh, yeah, I mean that, so that, 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 that was, you know, I, I had to just realized it called all my sponsors and told them that was it. And then how, how did you come to the illustration? Was it just, uh... Oh yeah. So, uh, this is part of bizarre. I, now all of a sudden I have this huge medical deck, of course in the U S I'm like oh, going to lose my house. I'm like, screwed i had insurance but you know didn't cover it it's, you know a zillion dollars did, did the brands back you up they tried but i mean it, you know it's hundreds of thousand dollars and oh, like shit. like everything's screwed up so now i've i can't ride totally in debt um and i really didn't know what to do you know i could barely walk my my resume is like hey 20 years ago i worked in a juice bar <laughs> you know <laughs> Like this is life after pro. Maybe it's an like, inspirational story about juice juices getting you back. The one thing he knew about from BMX and just this is life after juice. life after pro. It's kind of you know everyone has their story, but like this was mine. And I had a friend who owned a bar, so I'm like thinking oh, I'm gonna go down there and see if I can be a door guy or something. I yeah. have no idea what to do. But literally, this is true. I'm buttoning my shirt. I had a shirt with buttons back then. Gonna go ask if I can get a job at the bar. And phone rings, and my sponsor, one of my sponsors, Odyssey. I just decided they're moving their design office to Austin, which made sense because a lot of their pros were in Austin. And they're like, hey, we're wondering if you would come work at the office. I'm like, what What would you have me do? And they're like, we don't know. We'll figure it out. No so way. they just hired me, like with <laughs> no job. And I went and worked there and I didn't know what the hell to do. And for the first few months, I literally drew cartoons. I started a blog, like just to put up cartoons and they were paying me for this. <laughs> why i don't know <laughs> i tried to learn how to do like cad drawing for them yeah but couldn't keep focused on that anyhow the end of it is i you know i'm from bmx and i've ridden bikes my entire life but i didn't know anything about big bikes bmxers call anything outside of bmx big bikes yeah rode some bike i found in the trash that had you know big wheels to work and i'm like i don't understand why i like this why can't we change it and i remember the the main guy at Aussie was like, let's do it. Let's make a brand. Let's make what you want. And so they basically let me create Fairdale bikes, which is kind of what I did. I tried to make really simple, easy to ride bikes for, for, for the people who I knew who wanted to ride bikes, but weren't like trying to race or wanted performance or anything. They just wanted to enjoy themselves. And do you think you managed to achieve that Fairdale? I think so. I mean, you know, especially at first we really, did some stuff that uh well it still resonates with a lot of people that just just want a bike and don't want to be confused and don't want watered down race technology so we tried to build it from the opposite direction like, let's make a affordable bike that's easy to ride rather than an affordable version of a performance bike man as a member of the mountain biking media establishment i feel quite embarrassed now <laughs> when the mountain biking industry to be fair i think does want people to be sort of not confused, but agitated, <laughs> kind of wondering what's going to solve all their problems next. You know what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm agitated by mountain bikes for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you've had best part of 20 years in Austin, getting to your late 30s and you do have this injury, or so mid, mid 30s. Without being funny, 36 years old, were you, were you thinking about winding down your career anyway? I was. I was still loving riding, but I was getting 
you know, I'd get the call, hey, we got this really awesome paid trip to Japan. You're going to go do stuff. And I'd be like, I don't want to travel. I just want to stay here and ride my ramp. You know, I was getting really jaded about that side of the job. And yeah, I was getting ready to like, I wanted to still keep riding, but I wanted to just kind of do my own thing. But this injury was a light switch, you know, it was like, just flip that switch and your life's upside down. How do you, you know, sometimes the, I believe, and only my very limited experience, you know, against the context of human endeavor, it's not much admittedly, but sometimes some of the worst things to happen to us at the time can turn out to actually be some, some, in some ways like the best, the most pivotal things, because that one thing that we were holding so close can be making other things seem less bad. You know, like I remember, I mean, and like I said, only in my experience, I've had things where my life actually hasn't been exactly what I wanted it to be, but I've had this one thing that's been like, oh yeah, this is the thing that's stringing it all together. Then when that goes, it's actually been like, oh, I have to reflect on everything and then actually make some better decisions because of it. What was, how do you feel about that injury now? Do you think actually it was a good way to get out of it or was it still kind of hard to think or even think about? Um, I mean, having that light switch was something I couldn't argue with that it's done now. Yes. I have friends who I've watched fade out, you know, they can't quite decide if they're done. They don't know when they're done and they, that's really hard. But I mean, it screwed me up. Like I, I floundered for years after that. Like you, I'm, you know, I'm sure pro mountain bikers are the same thing. Like this is what you are. This is what you do. This is defines your life. And then all of a sudden you're not that yes. like it's tough. It was tough, but yeah, I'm sure I'm, I don't, I'm not like, bummed every day that that happened to me like yeah. it seemed totally fair i've seen so many terrible injuries to my friends that much younger much worse you know i'm totally lucky yeah well that, that's fair and how do you think when you now i mean i don't know there's a really great film i don't know if you've seen it called the crash reel it's about um a canadian snowboarder called kevin pierce i believe and his run up to the 2010 Olympics. And the way that his results were going, he was sort of Sean White's main adversary. And it was looking like he might just pip him. And then he had a, um, like 60 days out before the Olympics or 90 days out or something, he suffered a traumatic brain injury. And he's like trying to, initially he's like, wow, like wakes up from the coma, you know, like 30 days to go to the Olympics. And he's like, I'm going to go to the Olympics. And they're like, no, dude, you're not going to go. And what was amazing was his journey to understanding that basically now he has a different set of rules. He has a, he has a different brain that he needs to learn to love and, and kind of integrate into, into a happy life. But the film, which I would highly, highly, highly recommend watching to anyone that's listening, um, it also talks about, like, in motorsport, they put in chicanes to slow people down. They limit the engine because young competitive people, there's a thing called Group B rallying in the 80s, will, will go and quite happily kill themselves pretty much in the pursuit of doing something really extreme you know in the formula one in the 70s and 60s the same way fatalities were very very commonplace how do you feel as someone that's had maybe the negative experience so a bit of a convoluted question but when we talk about like rampage and injuries a lot of our commenters will always chip in like about medical expenses and hope people are being covered as someone that's been through all of that both in terms of the progression of a sport factoring in medical expenses which in the United States of America can be extortionate. Um, 
how do you feel about jumps just getting bigger? I mean, it's maybe it's more of a mountain biking question because I'm not that clued into the BMX scene. But when you look at things like Rampage and Hardline and these crazy slope style things, now that you've got the, a degree of wisdom compared to your young, your young self living in a skate park, how do you feel about it? Well, I feel lucky that my time was when the ramps were smaller. Like, you know, in my sort of era, if you went 15 feet off a lip, it was the highest thing in the world outside of Matt's crazy 26 foot tall ramp, you know, and you can jump 15 feet and probably be okay. You might break a leg, but it's a reasonable height when you're talking 25, 30 feet. Now all of a sudden it's like, you know, train wreck if you crash, yeah. you know, like, so I don't know. I mean, I always felt like I was sort of, I had that feeling of being in control. Like it was all something I could handle. I felt like you could, throw me off a roof of a house and I could kind of deal with it, but it was not over that limit where it was too, too, too far, you know, like, um, so yeah, I feel grateful that my time was in that era where it was just a little, little less big than it is now. But now, I mean, even now, like there's plenty of riders that just don't go quite that big. It doesn't have to be a stunt you know, every time. Um, why, well, in your opinion, what's your, your feeling about it? You know, we go up riding in the park, we're in full face helmets. Do you wear any, do you wear knee pads or anything like that? No. No, which is fair enough, but it's your decision. Um, in mountain biking, I feel that going back to the 90s and over a similar timeline, the things we've ridden has obviously got more extreme, more advanced or whatever. And our protection sort of kept up. At least where most people would wear, if they're riding Western Bike Park, knee pads, gloves, and a full-face helmet. Even the pro circuit was seeing, um, you know, it always amazed me when I went riding with World Cup riders last year, even if we'd just be going for, like, cruising around, just doing some downhill runs, they'd often be there in, like, a spine board and elbow pads, and I'd be there in shirt and a T-shirt, you know, not really thinking of it. Where, why, why don't BMXs wear full-face helmets? Be my first question. Or any helmet at all. And how was your relationship with it? Why do you think it kept pace with the amplitude of things you're doing getting bigger, but not more protection? Oh, the helmet thing. Um, and it's hard, sorry, to, sorry to, I don't want to, but I think you should be able to, I don't want you to feel like you've got to be an advocate for or against helmets here. You can just give your opinion. Well, no, I, no, you should wear a helmet. Like, wear a fucking helmet. Of course you should. It's so obvious. And in our, in our sport, in BMX, in, I mean, every, there's been so many terrible injuries, head injuries, people in, you know, that altered their lives and should wear a helmet. But, on the other hand, well, so Jesus, it's such a big question. First of all, I went through a really rough time where I felt like all my past head injuries were really getting to me. And I watched, I met with this like CTE specialist and we did all this stuff and tried to figure out how many concussions I had. Basically, there used to be this video magazine every month called Props. And it's like, you know, of course, pre internet, you actually get a VHS tape in the mail. And no anyway, they, they did this like, <laughs> box set of all their issues so this spans like early 90s to i don't know late 2000s or something or 2015 i don't know something like that anyway i watched all of them and kind of like scanned through them and i'd see myself get knocked out at a contest no memory of it but i'd see it see it on screen and be like oh yeah i do remember i woke up in an ambulance at this one or this one i woke up there was people giving me stitches and you know like i ended up counting like 26 
KOs where I was like, no way, like out and woke up later. Then not counting all the times where you'd hit your head and just be like, keep riding. All of my worst ones, I was actually wearing a full face motocross helmet, which is the best we had back then. Cause it was there on vert ramps where you're kind of going straight head first down. And when it goes wrong, it goes really wrong. And I was never really that good at it, but I could go high enough to hurt myself. <laughs> um, but I certainly had ones where I wasn't wearing a helmet or I was wearing those stupid skateboard helmets that just did absolutely nothing. Um, so anyway, no justification for not wearing a helmet, but I mean, I think it was, I feel, I just imagine trying to explain this to pink bike people. We're real people too, Tosh. You can speak to us. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm not trying to justify it, but so this is the, my thought process back then was I want my bike. What mattered to me is my bike felt absolutely like it was part of me. It was just my other, it was a leg. It was like an extension of my body. I would leave the house on the bike. I'd go pedal around the city. I might just pedal around. I might do some handrails. I might hit some dirt jumps. And it wasn't me going to do stunts. It was just, this was just the part of me existing you know that's pretty abstract i guess but like i get it though and then the other part of it was this when you get to that when you get to a level at it it's about overcoming fear like very definitely that was the challenge that's what bmx was it wasn't doing the stunt it was looking at some crazy thing some gap some handrail then it gave you that stomach in your feeling where you knew you could do it but it was really scary. And the only way you were going to be able to do it is if you could block out fear, come to a hundred percent focus where you just stopped feeling and thinking and just did it. That is what feels cool. That's what felt cool to me is like that flow state where you were just not afraid, not thinking, just feeling doing it. Cause it, something in your stomach told you to do it. And why does something in your stomach tell you to jump off a roof? I have no fucking idea. <laughs> But we all have it, you know, like we all pull up, even, you know, mountain bikers pull up to a rock roll. It's scary. It's terrifying. Why do you do it? It's just like, there's something. Anyway, back to BMX, you're standing there, you're at this handrail. It's really scary. You could make it less scary. You could put gymnastics maps, mats down the stairs. Mm, right. All of a sudden it's less scary. You could put foam stuff on the rail. You could try a smaller rail and work up to it. You could put chest protector and elbow pads and knee pads and a helmet on and all of a sudden it's less scary, but that's not what you're trying to do. You're trying to overcome this fear. You're not trying to make it less scary. You're trying to overcome this fear. And it's such a personal thing. You're all alone. Most of the time you're not, I'm sounding like I'm justifying it, but you're forgetting that you're a pro and there's a magazine and a video and some 14 year old kid looking at it thinking this is how you should do it. You're so focused. This is me. This is my challenge to overcome this fear and do this, you don't want to go put a full face helmet on because yeah. it makes it easier. That is a horrible justification, no, but, it, but that's sort of the thought process back then. And you can you can explain what you felt. And I mean, truthfully, truthfully, people shouldn't listen to you or I or anyone about whether you wear helmets. They should just look at the data. That's been like that's you know like I'm not I'm not an expert. In terms of helmet safety, I can tell you what's comfortable and what's ventilated. But in pink in reviews, we tend to stay away from actually what's safe or not because how could we, how could we really tell? Um, I'm a big. I'm coming around to more and more protection. Um, I did an op ed probably two years ago about why lightweight 
full face helmets were stupid. Um, and I st- actually, I, I stand by it to be honest with you. I think that if maybe it's a similar sort of pro- thought process, if you're going to wear an open face helmet, which is as light as I would ever go in my helmet in, um, and you want more protection than that, but you would, you're going to ride in the same way in the same terrain, then a lightweight full face helmet is great, but it's not the same as a downhill helmet. It's not the same as a, and it's not something that should give you any sense of, in the sounds of it. I mean, who am I to say? It's such a personal thing. Any sense of, I can do it because now I've got this full face on. And that's quite a dangerous place to, to go into. Like, you can either do what you cannot, and you should be protected adequately for what you're trying to do, in, in, my, in my opinion. Do you ever hear, like, skateboarders will talk about this. I remember also thinking this, like, you could wear knee pads and all this stuff, but it starts to encumber your movement to an extent. Mm. And you want to feel like, okay, you're doing something... You jump in some cliff and you're basically, you're going to die if you don't make it, right? <laughs> yeah. What's the point of wearing pads? Like, yeah. just be as free and move as easy as you can if it's do or die. Yes. Like, but of course that's nonsense, right? Like, you're not doing something that, that crazy. And, but I remember that thought process too. And I'm, I regret that. Mm-hmm. I, I, like, I watched some of my old videos and I'm like, it's sort of hard to watch without wearing a helmet. And, yeah. But again, all my worst concussions were with helmets. That doesn't prove anything, but yeah, I mean, yeah, the thing is as well, like, I don't know, I, I don't, I don't know, I guess, yeah, the, I think also like, think about, think about the era this was happening in. And, and that's important because I think that, I don't know, you're doing something super fucking gnarly and there are lots of reasons not to do it. You know what I mean? Um, going back just to when when you were sort of in your heyday, you mentioned X Games earlier on. When we talk into, we spoke about a, a bit the idea of the consequence of injury. We've spoken a bit about the idea of you know of risk of doing something that's really difficult. How do you feel? How did you reconcile the needs of competition with your? It sounds like you kind of a lot of the other riding was for quite kind of an innocent, pure purpose of getting outside, riding around, enjoying your body, and, and that sort of thing. How did you factor that the competition element in? I'm going to get into another deep story here. Go for it. And I'm already like kind of stressed about the helmet thing just because it's such a... Dude. Whatever. But sorry, just to book, bookmark that, like people should... We're not giving them any advice. We're just saying... No, I wear, wear a 90s. fucking helmet. Well, like, yeah, sorry. Yeah. You should wear a helmet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sorry. You should. Yes. Of course you should. And I was kind of... Anyway, early on, my very first photo shoot, this team I rode for, first photo, I was like 16, 17. Went to the skate park, our whole team shows up, and there was 10 of us, and the magazine was there to shoot photos. Um, and the best one of all of us, a uh, guy, I didn't know him too well. He was really good friends with a lot of my friends, but I, I mean, I was friends with him. And he was like, he was gonna, he was like Dave Mirror level. He was just like gonna be the dude warming up, crashes, forks break off, paralyzed. Wow. Right there in front of me. Like, in my memory, I felt like I could have caught him. You know, yeah. that's not realistic, but it was right there. It rocked me, you know, for this very young age. Only thing in the world to me was bike riding. And all of a sudden, I've seen one of my friend's lives completely changed by it. And now I have to rationalize this. Like, can I ride? Can I push it this hard knowing the consequences? Like, like it's not theoretical. It's right there 
bolted to the stretcher going to the hospital. It's really hard. And I was really distraught. I remember we stayed at skip park really late. We didn't know what to do. Nobody knew what to do. We were shook. And I just found myself in the far corner away from everyone riding in circles on this ramp, not, not doing air. It's just riding in circles. Cause I just couldn't, my bike was the only solace I had in the world. And I was mm. just riding. And I, and right there, I had this kind of moment where I'm like, well, if I'm going to do this, it's going to matter to me. It's going to matter. It's not going to be some stupid arbitrary contest I'm trying to win. It's going to be because I love it and because it feels right. And I carried that through my whole career. Like I rode on feeling um, over all else. So I go to con. So I, I'm, I can vividly remember being in the X Games, had a big lead. I'm going to probably win. And everyone's on the deck saying, you know, just do anything. Do an X up and you won. And my mind is like, fuck that. Like my body says, try this trick I've never even tried before and like would crash. And But that felt better than trying to trying to win on purpose. I don't yeah. know if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Because that's the problem with the X Games is like, it's very contrived, right? Like, this guy does a bar spin, you do a double bar spin, you score higher. This guy does a bar spin flip, you do a double bar spin flip, you score higher. It's very obvious. It's not coming from feeling, because there's never a feeling where you're like, feeling tells me to do one half more bar spin than this guy. Like, that's bullshit. Like, you're trying to unlock the code to win this arbitrarily judged contest. So I never played that game. I rode on feeling and I did win some contests and it was really awesome and felt great to win a contest, but it was like hail Mary's and just doing what felt right. And I might just as easily crash all my tricks and not pull anything. And that felt fine too. Did I actually answer a question no, you, there? You, you did. You did yeah, absolutely. It's, it's funny how, um, I know there's this, um, British comedian called Lexi sale who was, did some kind of, sitcoms and stuff in the 80s but he's very um alternative comedy is sort of his his, his shtick i suppose and um he has this great example saying you know like you know as soon as you you try and put a score on something it becomes grotesque like ballroom dancing is a good example all the women are angular they're grimacing these weird smiles and it's kind of the same way it's difficult then again do you think that things like being in the olympics x games um all this sort of you know in Obviously, we're right behind us. We pretty much got the the joyride slope style course. Do you think, in some ways, though, that the exposure granted by these things does help express in other areas because it almost subsidizes the projects that aren't going to be the, the that's the argument in it? I don't know. I have always been uncomfortable with it. You know, like I've heard that argument about the Olympics. Like, there's skate parks going up all over the world, so people can train for the Olympics, and it's an it's a it's a accepted sport and more people are getting to do it all that's great on the other hand the riding makes me not want to ride my bike it like totally turns me off it's totally i always make the music analogy it's music without any soul it's like that doesn't get me stoked on music what gets me stoked is seeing feeling and expression of the players put into it and I feel like a lot of that high-level contest riding strips that out of it. Yeah, it's like it's like Brian Eno produced you two, like overproduced, just massacred. Well, yeah, I'm not really familiar <laughs> with that, but <laughs> basically, well, yeah, exactly what you're saying. Like something that is so, hmm, 
becomes so homogenized. I remember seeing a band and it was all hired guns. They like weren't really a band. It was all people playing the click tracks in their ear and they were all just playing their part. And it was so empty. Yeah. And then the next band was like raw and playing off feeling and changing the songs and looking at each other and just going with it and flowing. And, and that was like really moving. But it comes down to it. Like who do you think has got a, a better voice, you know, like someone, I don't know, like Robert Smith or Bob Dylan or someone that sings, you know, maybe run it through auto-tune once or twice and see what comes out, you know? That's the nuances of it all. It's like you could be some punk rock band that can't even play your instruments, but you put everything into it and it's awesome. <laughs> or you could be, you know, some brilliant singer and you're still playing technical stuff that's above what anyone else can do. We can apply this to bike riding. You could be some brilliant bike rider who's doing the craziest tricks ever. And that you're so good at it. That's so it's like, that's what's coming out. But there's a difference between that and then someone else who's just knocking out. I don't know. Yeah. Knock, knocking out the tricks. I mean, yeah. Anyway, the Olympics and all that stuff, it's a tough, but I don't care. I, I think they kind of did a pretty bad job of representing the Olymp- BMX in the Olympics. Like it, it's like they fit BMX into gymnastics rather than making the Olympics accept BMX. Yes. Um, right. The stuff that matters to me as a rider is not portrayed there. You know, I don't care if you land every trick perfect. I'd rather see some rawness and some, I mean, I don't really want people to just huck it and crash, but I want to see like, you know, the Olympics should take it. Like it's not a clear cut winner. Like they don't, that's not what it is. Like, yeah. It can be, it becomes very sanitized at a point. Yeah. I think it's a shame to try to make it into there's a clear-cut winner because I think that's totally bullshit and that's just not. There just can't be. It's totally judged sport. It's not a finish line. Yeah. It's just not how it is. So Now, we mentioned music earlier on. How was your music career coming along? Am I right in saying that you were playing a bit at one point and you even... You told me some story one time you performed, the first time you performed. What was that about? I got sponsored by Fender. <laughs> For BMX. Just so low key. <laughs> well, for BMX, right? So, like, I didn't actually have an in- know how to play an instrument, um, but they, I got free equipment. Anyway, uh, I ran into some a friend who, brilliant musician, play every instrument, is recording engineer. Started playing with him. I played bass. He played drums, and it was awesome. Yeah, it clicked right. All of a sudden, I got it, and it was actually anyway. We, Fender invited us to play the show. Um, big festival and we had <laughs> our band had this one pretty tedious 30 minute long song that didn't repeat no <laughs> vocals total math rock stuff you know <laughs> i remember when we did get good at playing it like it kind of would break my heart i'd be playing and i'd see people move into my bass and it felt really good but i knew there's a change coming up we're gonna pull the rug out we're going to this other count here we go here we go and now they can't, you know, nod their head to it because it just. <laughs> Our first show, uh, my first time on stage, you know, this big ass stage. Um, I had never played a sound monitor before. They sound guy asked me, "Can you hear?" I'm like, "Sure, hear everything." It's super loud, but I was playing to the sound, like shooting across this huge arena or this huge field and bouncing off a building, so I was like off time. Oh shit! Uh, I. I, I <laughs> We got a wager in the song. I train wrecked it because I'm playing to the wrong <laughs> beat. You know, we all start trying to play again. We start at the wrong spot. Tried a few more times, just couldn't get back in sync. And the guitar player, like, kind of 
gave up and ran off the stage and, <laughs> and we just had to call it. And that was my first time on stage. So <laughs> how many people were there? Hardly any. I mean, it was a big festival, but it was very early in the yeah, day. Yeah. <laughs> but I can remember a few of my friends out there, like just kind of cringing and probably wanting to walk away, oh, but feeling like they couldn't. Oh man. Well, you got through it. Hey, it was awesome. Actually. <laughs> I mean, it was a really humbling. And it was also this realization that it was actually the first hobby I've ever had. The first thing I wasn't going to dedicate my life to. It was just like, yeah, wow. this is just fun. I, I, I just like this, but I never got to the point. Like when my music we, we toured and there was a part of the tour where I actually started to be able to play without thinking. But most of the time I was still counting. I was pretty, not, you know, amateur, but mm. it, I enjoyed it. So what are your, if illustration and writing is maybe sort of the work stuff and is mountain biking your hobby now? It is. It, yeah, it's all a bit of a mix now. Strange to not be focused on one thing only in my life. And what, what do you hope to get out of? This sort of new. When we when did you get your first suspended? Admittedly, just a hardtail, but suspended mountain bike. Well, through the years, I kind of had them. I actually, I think mountain bikers know Dave the Frank the welder. Yeah, right, right, right. So my bike company, Terrible One, had bikes made at Spooky by Frank, first ones. So he made me a bike at some point. Didn't click. Went some other maker. He made me a mountain bike. Didn't click. Rode for Giant very briefly, got a mountain bike, didn't oh, did click. did you really? Yeah. No way. When was that? This is right. This is when I was in a lot of pain. <laughs> is that a good what an endorsement of Giant, the correlation. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Giant. Well, no, it gets better. So th- I was actually hurt, but I was like kind of winding my career down. I was for surgery and I'm thinking, but I still love bikes. Maybe I can be like an ambassador and go to like the tour to France and go to mountain bike races and I'll like write about it as kind of a every man and experience it and that sounded cool. But then like it kind of just all fell apart and the team manager left who kind of organized this deal. And all of a sudden I was just like pretty faceless company. I actually got fired by a letter with my name spelled wrong. From oh, Giant. <laughs> oh mate, nothing better. So that, that was my corporate bike company experience. Didn't really work out. I've got a funny story about name spelling. <laughs> so, oh God. <laughs> so the funny, right. So, um, I used to work for, a YouTube channel previous to GMBN. And um, I rock up on the first day, like whatever, you know, I don't really necessarily knew at the front desk and stuff that I was turning up or anything like this. And I was kind of thinking like, is this job, does this job exist? Like I just sort of like, I'd come back from New Zealand pretty much and started like two days after, after I landed. And I get all my, before I meet any of the team who thankfully did know I existed and I was a real person that came for a real job. It was many just like, you know, the, the HR people and the production people. And they were just like, oh, so who are you? What? And you get there like in a really embarrassing situation, like having to like explain who you are, you know, uh, which is all good. I mean, like, you know, everyone has, everyone has these sort of things happen in all sorts of companies. But I got all my paperwork through and on all the things it said Henry Quinnell. <laughs> <laughs> so I signed all my contracts under the wrong name. It took like two months of going around this company to, um, to get them to change my name to what it actually was, which is Quinny. And I finally tracked down the guy that was responsible for it. And I said, oh, sorry, just so you know, I think I need to speak to you. My name's actually Quinny, not Quinnell. He said, oh, okay. He said, Quinnell, is that French? I was like, it's a name that you made up. <laughs> I don't know if it's French or not. Anyway, so then that happened. It was all very funny. Me and my friends laughed about it for a long time. And then, long story short, I did a little, um, I had a little cameo in this Red Bull series last year. And they spelled my name wrong in that as well. I, come, it was I think it was like Quinnell or Quinley or something like this. 
And all my friends that have been on the Henry Quinnell times were like, they've done it again. <laughs> I like it better when you tell stories than I do, actually. Nah, I wouldn't say that. So um, you had, had the time for Giant, fired by a letter. I mean, maybe, maybe could they spot your name or maybe you're still on the book stage. Yeah, I've heard of that stuff where people get checks for years, but <laughs> I, I didn't get them. And um, so oh, no, so the yeah, so then yeah. so then uh, I moved to okay. All this, I was kind of talking about the concussion stuff. I started getting sort of a really hard time. I had a really hard time dealing with stress, which I it's really hard to pinpoint, but I have to imagine it has something to do with having all these concussions and CTE stuff. And so I enrolled in these studies and started seeing the therapist and. I decided I needed to unplug myself from stress, so I moved to this really small town in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, just to be around trees and woods, and set about like just de-stressing. Actually, the the pivotal moment on that was I I was driven manual cars, and I'm like backing out my car, and there's a lot of stuff going wrong in my life. But I remember kind of get the car in reverse, get to roll out of the parking spot in, the, in this grocery store, and then I cannot figure out how to put it in first gear like driven manual cars for 20 years and i cannot figure out what to do and i just just end up just start bawling like i just totally broke down and it was just like all right i gotta do something i gotta yeah something's up move up the upper peninsula this like hilly mini mini mountains all the way up to the peninsula yeah 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 (laughs) no i actually i sold that car the next day and i got automatic wow yeah it was that it was that dramatic oh dramatic wow uh Anyway, up there, I, I got a mountain bike. I got a, so this is what, seven, eight years ago? Eight years ago? It was a Surly Instigator, which is a really weird 26 plus size bike, but it's actually a perfect BMXer's first mountain bike, I think. Totally a dirt jumper with just a little bit bigger wheels. Yeah. And the 26 plus aren't as roly poly as like the 27 plus and the 29 oh, okay, plus. Yeah. Bit wider rim. So you can actually still pump it like a BMX bike. And then all of a sudden, I, that was the first time I got like a corner where that suspension hooked up and it made sense, just a fork, you know, and it's like, ah, I get it. This is cool. It actually isn't and the then, end of the world. And then and at this time, I couldn't really hit jumps. I could, actually, when I moved to the upper fence, I couldn't make it through these tiny little tabletop jumps that were there. It took me like six years of living up there to be able to make it through these like eight foot long jumps. So I've come a long way since surgery, but I could ride around in the woods and that's awesome. Like. Mm-hmm. Talk about de-stressing. Go ride around in the woods and look at trees. Yeah, no, totally. totally. I, mean, I think it's it's funny hey, how, I don't know, for me, and it's obviously only my limited experience, but I find living, Squamish is just about, and obviously it's a personal thing, I'm not, but I grew up on a farm. I then moved to New Zealand, which was a relatively small town. I mean, it would get busy in terms of tourism. Don't get me wrong, of course it would. Um, But like, I moved to when I went back to the UK, I was living in a city, Bath, which is a tiny city of like 100,000 people. And I found it very hard to live there. I think Squamish is probably the biggest place I could, I could handle living in. And it is not exactly a large, a large place. It's basically two exits on a freeway, you know? Um, speaking of riding around, we both do, I think we spoke about before, you know, I think we both have a love of sort of aimless riding in a way, just getting out there and, and ticking off some stuff. You've got some plans coming up. Are you able to talk about them? Or is that still too early days? Oh, yeah. No, I'm on an adventure. Um, I uh, sold my house and started driving. I got Chicago, got sick of driving. So I sold my car at a, a 
what are those places called again? The places where you can sell your car and they have the big elevator. <laughs> I, I have no, I know what you mean. I mean, you can sell a car. Sweet. Well, whatever. You yeah. sell it on, you can sell it. I'll remember two hours from now. Anyway, <laughs> sold my car someplace near the airport, hopped on a plane, flew up here, spent, I'm on two months up here. I got a few more days. Then I'm going back to see some family near Detroit. And then I'm planning to ride from there to Brooklyn, New York. It's about 800 miles. I don't know what that is in kilometer. It's far. Then I booked a boat from Brooklyn, New York to Southampton, UK. Yes. How long has that taken? Seven days. Seven days. Then wow. I'm riding around Europe for a couple months. So cool, man. I'm pretty excited. And it's totally me a switch. Like I'm not mountain biking. I'm right taking a bike packing, taking a Fairdale weekender plug. And um, <laughs> they're helping pay for it. And uh, I'm going to like, yeah, I'm, I'm looking for somewhere new to live and I'm just going to wander around. Just doing cool shit, man. That's, that's, that's the one. And then hopefully, I mean, I still need to get my life in some semblance of order, but hopefully we'll both be in New Zealand at the same time. You haven't got any confirmed plans out there. I haven't got, we both expressed an interest of being out there. Yeah. I'm going to end my trip in winter, so I'm going to need to go somewhere. Yeah, dude, I can't do another winter in Squamish. I cannot <laughs> do it. I, uh, yeah, I, I like seeing the world by bike and I don't know. I mean, if you wanted to wrap my life up, I just know I'm happier on a bicycle. That's just the one constant in my entire existence. So I'm just going to try not to fight it and just do it. I think I'm going to not only butch the quote, but also I'm going to misattribute it. Okay. <laughs> I think it was George Edison that said, um, the bicycle is like the only invention that hasn't come, you know, with some significant drawback to some humanity. You know, it's just, it's good. George Edison? I think so. Who's that? I can't remember. <laughs> I think he was an important person. I mean, I'm going off on things. I, I know. feel like you're mixing George Washington and Thomas Edison or something. But I like it. Maybe he's a real person. I'm going to Google him later. Yeah, we should right but now. Someone said. Have you got your phone? George Edison. Sorry. Podcast. We're going in. Um, <laughs> but, ba- you know, I mean, for me, bikes have been such a... I wrote this thing. Oh, I'm going to blog or write about my trip, hopefully for some media, but... um. I wrote a thing the other day about it, about bikes. Just, I don't know. I, I, I've, I've argued with myself, like, why do I dedicate so much of my life to bikes? I'm a capable person. I could dedicate it to like helping people or something, you know, something more meaningful. But mm. I've argued this through my brain every which way. And it always comes back. Like, this is what you're supposed to. Do. And I don't can't justify it. It's just what. Yeah. I think, um, I don't know. I think it's really funny how people that are into I don't know, horse riding or, you know, dog schooling or whatever are probably into the same, they probably believe the same thing, but it's amazing. I mean, the pink bike community is an example of that and people that just get hooked and we love it. Hey, well, um, Taj, thank you very much. I need to do some manic Googling to find out what the hell I'm talking about, but thank you very much for your time and explaining your story a bit and telling all the young children that are listening why they definitely shouldn't ride in helmets. <laughs> much appreciated. Cheers, mate. Thank you.